Hey, thanks for joining me again for another episode of My Life Not Yours. And this particular episode is Memorable Encounters Part 3. The date is the 31st of July and I'm not going to lie, this episode is going to be mainly dedicated to Tokyo 2020. So if you're not a sports fan, for the first part of this podcast episode... I'm going to be rinsing stories, tales and my thoughts about what's going on. My obsessive passion for all things sports is the Olympics. For as long as I can remember when I could watch the Olympics for two weeks, everything has to revolve around that. You may be wondering how I managed to do that with work commitments and things like that back in the day, but I did. And Particularly with this one, I thought I wouldn't be interested because when Tokyo announced no spectators, they may cancel, COVID cases are rising, I just thought this is going to be an absolute joke. And actually, it's still like having my Christmases, even though I don't really celebrate Christmas too tough anymore, all rolled up into one. Even for the non-sport enthusiasts, you'd be hard-pressed not to be impressed by the superhuman efforts of the sports men and women taking part. So the Olympic Games started on the 23rd of July with many wondering if it was for commercial gains or the athletes really needing to compete because remember they've been in preparation for four years it was delayed last year so here we are Tokyo 2020 but in fact it's 2021 but it was really weird and I think for anybody who has managed to come out of this with a medal or make even a semi-final quarter-final whatever it is we have to give them a round of applause But before I get into some of the uh, amazing performances that I've been watching till God knows what time in the morning, it started off really weird because Japan's show director for the opening and closing ceremonies was sacked due to anti-Semitic remarks. So here we go again, people letting their feelings come through and airing it in public. Nothing like washing your dirty laundry as the saying goes. With only a thousand spectators allowed in the arena for the opening ceremony, it was really weird to watch because it should have been 68,000 people. And for anybody, again, who's not watched the Olympics, you have the opening ceremony. And this is a chance for the host country to give a bit of history through creative dance, performances, whatever it may be. But more importantly, all the teams that are competing march on in the most amazing national outfits around the arena so the teams are coming on and I think GB who has a massive team only had 22 athletes I think something like that and um, from what the press were saying and what I understood from some inside knowledge a lot of them just didn't want to take the risk of being out with loads of other people when they were some of them would be competing the next day as it were but it was just weird the other thing was the illusion they created in the arena were these kind of placard things sat on the seats where spectators would be and I should know because I was at the 2012 opening ceremony and it was out of this world the atmosphere was electric so you know it must have been quite hard for the athletes because you go there to compete at your highest level but part of it is that opening and closing ceremony and 
to be fair, I don't even know if there's going to be a closing ceremony because what they are saying to the athletes, as soon as you competed, you're on a plane out of here. The COVID is going up in Japan and they were pretty good before. So um, yeah, the experience is not great, but for some it has been amazing. So with me stamping my feet thinking, oh, there won't be any point watching it. The opening ceremony was on the Friday and by Saturday I was up till three o'clock in the morning and then Sunday the same thing and it kind of put me out of sync because I was trying to stay awake. From the UK, Japan is eight hours in front so you're a whole day in front so to watch anything that's taken place if you want to watch it live then you have to be watching it that time in the morning. Anyway, I was so bloody tired by the three days later I thought I can't do this, I'm going to have to just accept. Some things will be live where when I can watch it, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning or whatever, when I'm doing my work in the background, and then everything else has to be highlights. What I want to get onto though, which is really important, there seems to have been a surge in mental health issues. And it's no surprise, right? You've got the average athlete who's 23, 24, because you're at your peak, you're at your prime. I remember when I did some of my best jumping myself, that was the kind of age I was. But I'm talking about Simone Biles to start with. She's 24 years old, worth quite a lot of money. She's a gymnast, so it's not going to be worth as much as if you're a tennis star or golf player or one of the elite sports like motor racing that gets a lot of sponsorship. But check this out for stats. 19 world championship gold medals, 24 world championship medals overall. It's absolutely mind boggling. And she came in as the darling sportswoman from the USA and she pulled out. She was meant to do a double twist on the pummel horse in gymnastics. Something happened in her head and she only managed to form half of what she was supposed to do. She came off really dejected. There were a couple of other rounds that she did where it wasn't quite to her standard and she pulled out of mental health reasons. I found this quite distressing because it wasn't just her, right? Not just in the Olympics. Naomi Osaka, 23 years old, recently pulled out of Wimbledon tennis, grass courts. She lost in her first round at the Olympics. She's worth 60 million at 23 years old. And she had said mental health problems as well. Her mental health is really important. So there seems to be a pattern. I've spoken to some fellow Olympians, not that I was an Olympian, but I've got a lot of friends obviously in the field. And we're thinking, was this always there? Or is it now that society has given us the space to say we're not okay, our mental health isn't okay? And it's quite interesting. There's a documentary on Naomi Osaka on Netflix and um, you can just see, if you read behind the lines, you know, mother and father, she's a mixed race um, tennis player. She's a mixed race tennis player. She really struggled with fame having beaten Serena Williams. If anybody wants to listen to my sporting prowess episode, it's worth a good listen because I worked a little bit with the Williams, Serena in particular. But um, so you've got this 23 year old worth a whole lot of money. She's been an activist, particularly for Black Lives Matter. And yet she's halfway accepted by the black community. And I say halfway because she's half Japanese. I don't know if I should say accepted, actually. I think she's rejected by the black community because she's half Japanese. She was born in Osaka, I believe. I could be wrong. And then they moved to the US. Her dad's Haitian. The mum's Japanese. They've always stood by their side. But a bit like Richard Williams, who is Serena and Venus's father, he was the one who really pushed them in tennis. And he even coached Naomi at one point. By the way, Richard Williams has got a film coming out in November. It's about his life. Apparently his uh, book is really good as autobiography and it's quite funny because I met Richard Williams at Wimbledon and all I'm going to say is 
it was interesting. It was very interesting. Anyway, I really want to explore a little bit more about um, this mental health that is now coming out. And I think just today we had from the UK, Dina Asher-Smith, who was the world record holder for 100 metres, who had to pull out. And she was in tears when she was being given an interview. And what I found extraordinary by the BBC, they continued with this interview, even though she was breaking down. And I just think, oh my God, what are they doing? I mean, she was distraught. Basically, she'd had a hamstring injury that wasn't allowing her to run at her best. I mean, to be fair, the three women that won the 100 metres final, all from Jamaica. You're talking extraordinary times. 10.61 seconds was the winner. And... Would Dina have been in there? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, she's going to need massive support now with her mental health, having come to the Olympics. But she's still young. She's only 25. She's the darling of British athletics. But we'll see. I want to then compare this to people like Adam Peaty, world champion, God knows how many times over, an Olympic champion for breaststroke in swimming. Now, swimming doesn't get half as much funding even as athletics or people aren't as favourable in terms of sponsorship. And Adam Peaty was awesome. I mean, it was like watching a real life talking fish in the bloody water. I mean, the swimmer's body. Oh, I love it. They just the men, not the women, the men. (laughs) Broad shoulders. It comes down to this tiny waist and they just look awesome. But Adam Peaty, it's almost like he's chasing his own tail because he won the gold medal again. He's what, 24, 25. Does he retire gracefully now? There's nothing else for him to win. He's chasing his own world records. But does he keep going? Because as soon as he stops, he's got what, about a a year's more sponsors interested in him before he's kicked to the curb? No one's really interested in the swimmers. I mean, they can go into commentating and stuff like that. But after that, it's a dead end. And this is the cruelty of sport. And so, you know, you find that people do it for the love of it. But there is the massive commercial gain in certain sports. And there are only about five or four in this country. Golf, tennis, motor racing, football. You know, I won't even mention some of the players that have come out of the Euros who have signed with other clubs for £400,000 a week. Transfer deal, £40 I mean, it's just insane. And yet these people sound worse than me when I'm fluffing my words in their everyday speech. They can't even talk properly. But I digress. Back to Tokyo. Another thing I've been really impressed with is the digital technology in the absence of spectators. So one of the things is like the athletes, when they finish a race, whether it's triathlon or something like that, and let's not forget at the moment, guys, that I'm from the UK, I'm doing my podcast from the UK, and Great Britain, which includes Ireland, are doing really well on the uh, medals side. But when they finish something, they can go up to like this television cam which shows their loved ones at home live, waving at them and talking through it. I really love that. It's been really cool. But the biggest shocker, close your ears if you are listening to this before the Olympics ends and you're in the UK, our public TV broadcasting company called the BBC didn't set up a studio in Tokyo. So they are doing everything by virtual reality, augmented reality, or whatever you want to call it, in a studio at their Manchester headquarters, which is in the UK. And let me tell you something. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was one of the TV broadcasters that exposed it. And uh, Sir Chris Hoy, who was a gold medalist oodles of times across four Olympics for cycling, said something along the lines of, yeah, it may look like we're in Tokyo, but we're actually in Manchester in a virtual reality studio. So you get the skyline of Japan and everything. It looks amazing, but none of them are in Tokyo and just because of the pandemic. So we have got some people over there that do the kind of track side or when you finish the race, they're interviewing them. They're there at their own peril, I guess. But it's been really smart, the digital technology. And uh, yeah, it's kind of brought it all back to me when I was an Olympic torchbearer at London 2012. And I went to watch quite a few things. It was epic. The sun was shining. It was brilliant. And I think to round off my Olympic chat, my aim is to be in Paris in 2024. The Olympics are every four years, but this year they're going to bring it back into line for 2024 so it'll only be three years before those athletes have to prepare again hopefully i'll be in paris and see it i can't imagine it in france actually but i couldn't imagine it in london and it worked so there you go that rounds up my olympic chat you'll be glad to know In other sports news, we also have the Rugby League World Cup in the UK. And it was a bit of a blow earlier on, I think it was two weeks ago, not earlier on, two weeks ago when Australia and New Zealand, two of the biggest nations for rugby and rugby league, pulled out due to coronavirus. So if anybody thinks this is absolutely gone, then don't. I think in the UK, we have definitely dropped the amount of people that are being hospitalised and dying, but the cases are still up and it's amongst that young age group. And I think for me, when the Olympic Games started on the 23rd, I think, of July, I was feeling a little bit flatlined. And I think it was because for two and a half months, I've been socialising like an idiot, you know, seeing people I haven't seen in 18 months and stuff. And then I didn't have anything in my diary last weekend. And it was really weird that I had the Olympics, which I'm obsessed about, but no one called. I didn't have anything else in the diary to do. And I just felt flat. I think it surfaced as the pandemic has decreased in this country. And I guess I'm acclimatising back to normality that there will be times when there is nothing to do. And I just need to be comfortable with that, which I am because I've recognised why I was feeling like that. Because on the 19th of July, so just before the Olympics had started, that was on the Monday, was Freedom Day in the UK, i.e. no restrictions, so no social distancing, masks were optional. And even though cases were rising, the government went ahead and said, we need to learn to live with the virus. What has become really apparent, though, and it's a bit of Brexit, because remember, we've come out of the um, European Union, is the supply chain has been buggered due to Brexit. But also, we've got this pathetic app. Well, I can't say that. We've got this app, and it's called the National Health Service app, that will basically tell you if you've been in distance of someone who's got corona, and it will tell you to self-isolate. Well, this bloody thing has been pinging in people's pockets all the time. So guess what? People are off work, so jobs can't get done, whether it's food can't get on the shelves of the supermarkets. (laughs) 
it's just becoming a bit of a joke. So a lot of people now are getting rid of the app. I never had it, to be honest with you. I just thought, I don't want to know. I know that, that you may think, Tina, that is really bad. How can you do that? But I thought, this is ridiculous. People are getting pinged left, right and centre. I don't want to be pinged left, right and centre. And I've been so good. And the government who have been making absurd decisions as well, half of them seem to be bloody self-isolating because they've been in contact with somebody. But then they thought, do I need to self-isolate or not? It's all bullshit as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, out of all of that as well, I went into a client's office for the first time and it felt really weird because it was like having my first day at school. You went in there, they'd reconfigured this office that I used to work five days a week in um, when I was contracting there, but now I'm a direct consultant. And it was weird because somebody said, oh team, come in the office, you still got your pass, haven't you? Come on, there's a roof terrace drinks thing afterwards. And what my lesson was, even though I've been working from home, and I'm a member of a private members club that I can go and work at and that's why I joined it is that it was really good to be amongst people again and so the social element I mean I spent nearly four hours just saying hello to people and chatting didn't get any work done at all it was terrible but I think it really made me reimagine what my day should look like which is being around people for some of it and it also made me think about those companies that have said there's no need to return to the office if you want to come in come in And I'm not sure about that because the feeling that I had was great. Did I have that buzz again this week to go back in there again? If somebody said, are you coming in? Not really. I had things to do because there is that flexibility. But I think companies need to wake up and be really flexible about how people work. But ruling the office out completely, if you're an employed member of staff, not really sure about that one. So I think balance is key. And I know that I chat too much when I'm in an office environment. So it's really good for me to get my head down when I'm at home. End of. Something else that really sort of triggered for me this week because I've been part of a system as it were when I was younger is the systemic dismissal of kids in care and the abuse they've endured. I think I mentioned before that in this country we have different kind of um, wards or councils in certain parts and in London there's a council called Lambeth and they failed their kids in care miserably and when I heard this this week again it's come up before but there were seven years of kids being repeatedly abused and only one person was ever brought to court. I mean, it's just taking the absolute piss. And for me, I think I got off lightly, but you know that the real sad thing was there was um, a news report about it. And this guy, I would say, was in his early 60s, was saying that he can't believe that he still has to live with the horror of what he endured for seven years. And he broke down and started crying on national TV saying he still lives with those memories while all those care providers got off lightly they got away free. They didn't get off lightly. They got away with it. And I do think that when you have some of these children's homes and you have staff, I've read something else before in this home for young adults with learning disabilities um, and difficulties who were being abused by male staff. Do you know it makes me want to throw up? It really does. And I think I've mentioned this before when I was touted to be a social worker. I could never have been a social worker ever because I get too emotional and I think I would have gone to prison if I ever and still I would go to prison if 
anyone I knew told me they'd been interfered and I could do something about it, I'd kill them. I think I'd absolutely kill them. And as I said, I've been very honest, I was never interfered with from staff in the care that I was in. There were some people that I lived with that tried it on. They didn't get very far. Nah. I think I said before, there's one guy got out his little Tonka toy and I said, you can put that right back in your underwear. That ain't going nowhere. I was only eight, nine when he tried. You know, I just feel really strongly about kids in the care system. And if anybody has any ideas of what more I could do, because I'm not doing anything, I'm a mentor and I do a lot of mentoring for young people. I'm all ears because aside from fostering and adoption, that's another area that is an obvious one. But there's reasons why I haven't done that. I think I can do something a lot more. Maybe it's speaking out. Climate change. Wow. I didn't think I'd ever believe really what's going on. But we've gone from 30 degree heat waves, which is 86 Fahrenheit in those countries that use Fahrenheit, to flash flooding. I've never seen anything like it in this country, in the city I'm talking about. Because when we go out into the countryside of the UK, they always get hit with really bad floods. And I just feel so sorry for the people again crying their eyes out on TV where they've lost everything. They've got sewages and water up to the height of a washing machine. It's disgusting. But we had it in the city in London the other day. It it might have been something like out of one of those disaster movies. Cars were floating, roads were impassable, shopping centres were underwater. It was kind of freaky, y'all. I'm like, wow, wow, wow. What is really going on? It's, It's scary. Greta Zumberg or whatever her name is. Yeah. I think you've got a little movement that I might just have to sign up to. It's funny, when I spoke to my goddaughter and I said, oh God, can you believe it with all the flooding? I said, climate change. She said, no, I think it's down to the drainage problems we got in London. (laughs) She brings me right back down to earth. And I'm going to give a shout out to her today because my girl got a fantastic mark in her degree and she graduated a couple of days ago. Whoop, 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 whoop. I'm really pleased for her because the university students have had such a tough time. You know, they never got any refunds on fees and yet most of their classes were online. It's just been a joke. And again, a lot of their mental health has suffered during the final years of uni. So I'm proud of all those young people out there that got through and walked up on stage threw their hats and gowns in the air and got the piece of paper to say they graduated. Well done. So as we get to the end of this episode, I'm sorry for all those who hate sport, but I love sport, so you just have to bear and grin it. I have one thing finally to maybe mention. Have you ever had a problem with saying no? Because I have. And apparently it's the ultimate assertive skill that someone can possess, which kind of makes sense, right? Because when you say no to people, who can say no? Whether it's no, I don't want to date you. No, I don't want to go there. No, I don't want you as my friend. No, I don't want to go on holiday. You get the picture, right? How we talk to ourselves can impact our ability to say no. So For example, if you tell yourself you can't, you're basically reminding yourself of the limitations you've set for yourself. Make sense? If you say you don't, i.e. I don't want to eat that, blah, 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 you're creating a kind of feedback loop that reminds you of your power and control of a situation. Now, when I was reading up about this, I found that really interesting because if you say you can't, it's a whole different scenario to I don't. And so changing one word can change your whole behaviour. 
Again, when people hear don't, it's like a hard boundary, but hearing can't implies more of an open-ended answer that encourages people to try and persuade and coax you. So a great example of this, I remember when I was doing rock climbing. Can you believe I did rock climbing? I'm not saying I'm scared of heights, but I do get the hibbly jibblies. And I used to say, I can't, I can't get up there. I can't climb that 200 foot rock face. And yet people talked me into it. I was up the rock face. It took maybe an hour and a half. But I was up there. Imagine if I said, I don't want to climb it. I've created that boundary where I'm saying, I'm just not doing it. I don't want to climb that rock face. It's done. It's over. I just thought I'd give you that bit of trivia to think about. But I'm going to really think about that when I say I can't. Because actually what I'm saying is somebody please coax me, encourage me to do it. I need it. Whereas if I say I don't, I ain't doing shit. So the thought for the day, the power of words is everything. Think about what you say and how you say it. The sacrifice, trials and tribulations a world-class sportsman or woman has to go through goes way behind what you are beamed from your TV set or hear on the radio or read in media. With that peeps, I'm out to get back to the Olympics. Enjoy until next time.